The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So what we're going to do is last week I I taught on the first three verses of chapter 12. I'm going to kind of review all uh, verses 1 through 13 today. I'm going to kind of go back and look even at the verses we taught last week because I think taken as a whole, there's some more meat on the bone that we had to leave last week a little bit. So let's read together right now verses 1 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow faint or that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He quotes Proverbs 3, verses 12 through 13 here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the perfect fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Amen. I think sometimes just reading the scripture is enough. This this text, I think we could just read this text and we could just sit for the next 20 minutes and, and ruminate and meditate on these words. And that would be enough. It truly stands alone. However, I know we gathered here today, and and I'm going to do my best to to explain as well as I can and apply some of these texts. We're going to need God's help to do that. And the author here speaks about a a weary people. Those of you that have been a part of us throughout this sermon series in Hebrews, you've heard about the occasion of this letter written to a group of people who were weary and, and struggling to persevere and threatening to give up. And so the author has been writing to them all along. And so as you and I sit here this morning, we can ask ourselves these sorts of questions. We can put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. Have you ever felt weary? Have you ever felt faint-hearted? Have you ever been tempted to give up? If so, there's something very important and vital for us in these words. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, actually, Pastor Paul, I've never really been tempted to give up. I've not yet faced weariness or faint-heartedness. And and chances are, in the course of the Christian life, you're going to have those seasons. And so there's something very important for you here to hold on to 
to store up to apply at a later date. This passage is for all of us. And as you listen to the author, you can, you can hear the urgency in his voice. He says, run the race with endurance. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. He says, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Do not give up. The question, though, however, is how? How do we gird ourselves up that we don't give up as we grow weary and faint-hearted? These, these words are, are pastoral. The, the tone of the book of Hebrews is very pastoral. This is very likely a pastor who had been away from his congregation who was writing a letter to the people whom he pastored who are struggling and threatening to give up. There's a pastoral tone here. This is the words of a man who loves his people. These are people who, who he desperately wanted to see them endure to the end and not give up. And the words here now near the end of the book are no longer warning. These words are wooing words, as we said last week. He is wooing his audience to respond. He's not coming at them with the whip. He's wooing them. He's reminding them of some of these things that are true, that are vital to know and hold on to in the midst of struggle. In fact, he is reminding them. I love that word, reminding. He is putting back in their mind true things that need to remain in their mind. Renewing their minds. They're they're not just for them then either, by the way. God in his infinite wisdom has preserved these words for us through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit that these words are for us today as well. And as we gather in this place, we speak these words over our congregation, over our context today as well. That our minds might be brought back to the truth. That we might be reminded of these all-important things. You know, many of you maybe know, maybe some of you don't know that that Pastor Jeremy and his wife Crystal are out of town this week. Pastor Jeremy's wife Crystal, who also works at Heritage, they both are on staff here. Her father suddenly passed away this week. And so they had to fly out of town at the last minute. They're just gathering, trying to figure out plans. Her, her father passed away a couple days ago. His name was Kirk. And as I was messaging back and forth with Crystal this week, I, just, I shared these words with her. I said, Crystal, I'm praying Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13 over you and your family. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. May God make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And I think that's the whole point of the text today. It all leads up to that. The the big idea, the main idea of today's sermon is simply this. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, as we gather today, I, I know that there are many here. And God, for each person who is in attendance in person, for each person who's in overflow, for each person who is tuning in online who, who, or who's going to download this podcast, we're all at different places in this faith journey. But God, I know these words are true, and I know that each one of us in, in time within our lives will endure seasons of hardship, weariness, faint-heartedness, struggle, difficulty, where we are going to be implored and encouraged by you to remain strong, to not give up, to persevere, to run the race, to, to not grow weary, to strengthen our weak knees. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to hear today with hearing ears and to see with seeing eyes and to respond with obedient hearts, uh, to encounter these truths and apply them in such a way that we run with perseverance, faithfully finishing the race of faith you've placed before us. God, would you... Meet us today in this place. Have your way with us today in this place. God, give us these truths to store up in our hearts and minds that we might apply them throughout the course of our life. 
and of this faith race. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at camp this last week, uh, uh, there was about 50 or 45 high school kids from around the state of Oregon, and my son Elijah was a cabin leader, um, and you know, Eli's really competitive, and so when like these games of tag and these sort of fun camp games started happening, he became, um, oh, just like a killer. He just, you know, he like, he was a man among boys, and these poor kids trying to play tag, it was so unfair, and he was just tagging them all, and they're like, Eli's amazing. Yeah, and I, he's pretty cool. And uh, they wanted to run as fast as Eli. So part of the camp was they had this activity portion every day where you could kind of do a fun activity. And so day two or three of camp, the kids were like, hey, we want to run fast like Eli. And so Eli started a strength and conditioning activity club where he was, these kids were, it really it was just a way for him to do his track workouts at camp. And I'm, and I'm watching and he's running these hills like in his perfect form and these kids are just sweating and half dying as they're trying to keep up with Eli. But he was trying to coach him and it was great. And actually just a really weird little, quick little aside, both my son and daughter Abby and Eli, they, they run college track. And I just want anybody in here who's got high school students or middle school students who are athletes, on Sunday nights for the rest of the summer from 8 to 9 p.m. at... Uh, St. Mary's High School here in town, they're going to do strength and condi- or speed and agility. So if you're an athlete or you know your kids is an athlete and they want to work on speed and agility, my kids are just hoping to build into the lives of the students of our church. And so that's an open invitation. Talk to Abby or Eli after the service. Talk to me. We'd love for your kids or your neighbor's kids to be a part of that aside. So back to my sermon uh, after the commercial. Um, so I, I've been thinking about that. I was watching my son, watching him teach these kids, and I've been thinking about coaching as I've been thinking about this text. And, and you know, uh, my wife and I both have coached track and field for many, many years. And, and I think I've shared with you in the past that my wife is the technician and I'm the encourager. That's the role that we play in track and field. My, my wife is like engineer. She loves to break down every aspect of the event. And I just love to like encourage kids. I love to throw an arm around them. I love to be their number one cheerleader. I love to, to just cheer them on and make them feel loved and excited about what's ahead of them. Um, But if I were just coaching by myself, my role as an encourager or an exhorter or a motivator or one who gives inspiration, that's just simply not enough as a coach. That's a part of coaching. It's not the whole picture. Good coaching is not just motivation. It's also information. Good coaching is not just encouragement. It's also truth. It's not just inspiration, but it's also instruction. You got to do both. So, when you're coaching an athlete and they're struggling, what do you say? As an athlete is struggling to keep on going as they're pushing through and they're running a long race and their body's growing tired and they're threatening to give up, what does a good coach do? Well, he reminds the athletes of some things that are true. He offers them some instruction or she offers the athlete some instruction, but then also some encouragement. A good coach is providing information and exhortation at the same time as they're coaching their athletes. A good coach is talking to their athletes during the race. They're they're, they're at the corner when they cross the split. They're telling them, hey, that that was a 67-second lap. You're going to have to run a second faster if you want to keep pace with your PR or your personal goal. Hey, you're getting labored. Your running form is getting sloppy. You need to tighten up your arms. You need to tighten up your form. Hey, listen, she's coming up behind you or he's coming up behind you. You're going to have to dig down a little bit here. And at the end of the race, when they're just emptying the tank to try to hit the finish line, And the temptation is to let the head go out of whack and the arms go out of whack and lactic acid is invading the body. The good coach is there to say, no, eyes, arms, knees, feet, go. You're encouraging them and you're instructing them through the end of the race. That's what a good coach does. Encouragement and truth at all points. Don't quit. You got this. Be strong. Use your arms. You see, information 
without inspiration is, well, uninspiring, isn't it? Have you ever been around someone who's been in a position of leadership who's just about the X's and O's and they never have a rah-rah, go get them speech? You're like, bro, I just want to be motivated. Like, light a fire under us. Or have you ever been around a coach who's all rah-rah but no X's and O's, no instruction, and you're like, yeah, I'm inspired, but I don't know what I'm doing. I was talking to my daughter, Abigail. She was talking about when she gave birth to her son that she was in the delivery room and my wife was her encourager and my wife is in there saying, you got this, Abby, you're strong, you're gonna do this, God is with you. And then Abby was looking to the, the, the medical professionals in the room for instruction on how to give birth and they were offering nothing. And she said it was one of the most frustrating experiences of her life. She's in tremendous pain. My, my wife is a great encourager, but she's like, I've got encouragement, I need instruction. And all the lady would say to her was, listen to your body. Abby's like, I can't hear it through the pain. (laughs) See, in our Christian lives, we are called to run the race that has been set before us, as we learned last week. And we need both instruction and encouragement. We need both motivation and inspiration. We need both truth and motivation. We need both in the Christian lives. And our text today contains both of these when it comes to how to run the Christian life. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, when you confess Jesus as Lord, when you're born again, when you're saved, when you become a Christian, it is our intention at that point on to follow Jesus all the days of our life. In fact, when we go up to, to Fort Wilderness or, or Wilderness Trails at the end of August for a heritage camp, we're going to have a baptism up there in the lake, in the mountains. It's going to be wonderful. And when those people enter the waters of baptism, what they're essentially saying is, I now identify with the family of God. I, my, my, my old self is being buried and I'm being born again. The sins have been washed away and I'm identifying now with Christ. And when we enter the waters of baptism, essentially what we're saying is it is my intention now. I vow to follow Jesus all the days of my life. I vow to run the race that God has placed before me until I stand in the presence of Jesus. So if you're someone who has made a decision to follow Jesus, then you're in this race. And we need to know some things that are going to help us not be overcome by fatigue along the way, don't we? We need to know what it is that will lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We need to know what it is that will make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So what does the author say? What reminders does he give us in our 13 verses today that that make his encouragement effective with instruction? What truth, what instruction, what information does God give us through the author of Hebrews so that we'll have the encouragement to keep on running, to not quit, and to press on? Because the encouragement is is dotted throughout the text. Look at verse 1. This is such an encouraging verse. He speaks to, the, to the, the belabored and the weary runner. He says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with the endurance the race set before us. In verse 3, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then the thesis of our sermon, verse 12 and 13, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. What encouragement. Now let us look back over those same texts, verses 1 through 13 for the instruction. There is valuable information here, valuable and transformative truths 
as we look afresh at this section of Hebrews. And again, pardon my wordiness today. Part of, part of Jeremy and Crystal leaving to go to Arizona to be with family and, and, and process the passing of Crystal's father was, uh, was, was me stepping into the pulpit last minute because Jeremy wasn't here. So I did not have a chance to alliterate my sermon outline. I know you're going to be very disappointed. It all doesn't start with the same letter, but I tried my best to, to share with you four truths, right? Four bits of information. So here's the, here's the inspiration for the first point of the sermon. Strengthen your weak knees. That's the inspiration. Here's the information. Point number one. Others have run and have faithfully finished the race. This is really important for us to know. This is a really important truth for us this morning. Others have run and have faithfully finished the race. That's the whole point of chapter 11 of Hebrews, the hall of faith. All these faithful saints who have finished the race in faithfulness. And then the author begins our text in verse 1 by saying, we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. So let us also lay, every weight, lay aside every weight and sin which entangles our feet. Let us also run with endurance. And you see what he's doing here is he's propping up examples for this audience. Again, this is a weary, tired group of believers who are threatening to give up on their journey with Jesus. They're threatening to turn aside. And so he's holding up these examples of persevering faith. And what he's saying to them is this race can be run and it can be finished in faithfulness. It's possible. Others have run and have faithfully finished this race. It's not an impossible race. He gives us 16 names in chapter 11 and alludes to many more. When we were in Israel a couple of weeks ago, we were over by the Pool of Siloam, which is outside of the walls of ancient Jerusalem. And there's a spring there called the Spring of Gihon. It's an old ancient spring. And way back in the time of King Hezekiah, what, what 700 years BC or something like that, he needed the water of the Pool of Siloam on the other side of the mountain. It's the Kidron and the Hinnom Valleys. But there was a source of fresh water, but they needed it over here because the city was expanding. And so somehow, nearly 3,000 years ago, with, with primitive technology, Hezekiah had an aqueduct dug through the mountain, through solid granite that's, that's, that's continually going downhill to get to the other side so the water could be spread. It's incredible. He did it with primitive technology somehow. And it's still there. Hezekiah's tunnel is still there. And so when we were there, we're at, we're at the pool of Siloam and it's amazing. And then they're like, hey, we're going to walk through the tunnel to the other side. It's like a quarter or a half mile of underground tunneling. And we're going to walk the pool, the Hezekiah's tunnel to the other side. And I'm like, great. That sounds fun. Let's do it. Really inside, I'm freaking out. Because I have, I have four great fears in life. Bats, spiders, spaces, and water, right? So I, I have, I learned the, the phrase for, for bat phobia. It's called chiroptophobia. I have arachnophobia, claustrophobia, and aquaphobia. I hate water. Uh, and so here we are, the potential of all four of my greatest fears, you know, lingering in this aqueduct through the mountain uh, in Jerusalem. And so all these people who don't have those fears are like, yeah, it'll be fun. Let's do it. And I'm like, I don't want to do this, but I don't want to look weak, but I don't want to do this. And so we're getting ready to go. And I have this big old bulky backpack on and we're getting ready to go through the tunnel. We had shorts on, we had water shoes and I go get ready to go through the tunnel and my backpack snags on this little opening. And all of a sudden, I had this fear of me being stuck with, by my backpack under the water, dying with bats and spiders eating me. And I backed out, and I'm like, oh, no, I don't think I can do this. 
And then I realized that I would be shamed forever if I didn't do this. So I run and give my backpack to Kathy Johnston. God bless her. I'm like, carry this. She's like, I'll carry it. Get in the tunnel. And so I get in the tunnel. But what, here's, what, here's the funny thing. This is just an aside. I got to say this because it's, it's really funny. My wife was filming. And when she's walking through the tunnel, she was filming the whole thing. And when she realized that I turned back, she thought I abandoned her. And for like seven minutes on the, on the film, she's like, I can't believe he abandoned me. I can't believe he just left me here all alone. I'm going to use this against him the rest of his life. And I'm like, I was running after her the whole time. But here's why I was able to endure that, sincerely. I thought, okay, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of tourists have walked through this tunnel. Hundreds a day. And I got 20 plus people in my group that are going to walk through this tunnel today. Uh, I can do this. Others have gone before me. I got people ahead of me in my group. This is a runnable race. This is a finishable race. I can do this. The reason the author props up these 16 people in chapter 11 is so that you as a weary traveler, you as a weary runner can look ahead and say, "Ah, others have finished in faithfulness this race. I can do this. We can do, with God's help, this can happen. What an encouragement. If no one had ever finished the race, if, if, if there was a sign at the front of Hezekiah's tunnel that said, enter at your own risk, everybody who has ever entered this tunnel has died somewhere inside the tunnel. Not very encouraging. I don't think I would have done it. I know I wouldn't have done it. But it's, people have finished. And if you go back to chapter 10, if you have your Bibles open, flip back to chapter 10 real quick. Look at verse 36 and verse 39 at the end of chapter 10. As the author is kind of setting up chapter 11. This is kind of, we're looking at a little broader perspective this morning. The author says in verse 36 of chapter 10, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's painting a picture of what is on the other side of the race. Verse 39, after he talks about those that have given up, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back. That's not who we are. That's not who you are. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and who preserve their souls. So he tells them who they are, and he tells them what they need, They need endurance, and they're not the ones who shrink back. And then, bam, we're into chapter 11. And we read of these people who have run faithfully and who have finished the race. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab. Then we get to verse 32. Again, I know this is a lot. Verse 11, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter beginning in verse 32 for context here. He says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And then he starts talking about what their lives of faith looked like. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, 
Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance this race God has set before us. Do you hear it, church? Do you hear it? This valuable instruction from God, he tells you, he tells them, he tells us that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not who we are. We are of those who have faith. We are of those who persevere to the very end. We preserve our souls. These 16 examples in chapter 11 of preserving faith, you're a part of that. You're surrounded by these faithful saints as you run the very same race to the finish line as faithful finishers of the race of God. These witnesses, they're just spectators now. But they're not just spectators. They, 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 their perseverance, it, it, it testifies to the great promise of success. Their, their witness, as we run this race, it, it tells us that the life of faith is possible. And you know what? As we run this race, they are less looking at us as spectators, and we're more looking at them for encouragement. Ah, yes. This race can be run and finished to the glory of God. Hallelujah. You know, I was at camp this week, and part of my job was I was the camp dean, which was really fun because I was the disciplinarian. And uh, making teens squirm is always a little bit fun for me. And my kids tell me that I can sometimes be perceived as being intimidating. So I just leaned into that this week. Scowl, tattoos, the whole thing. I just want the kids to be scared of me. But there was this one instance where I had to deal with a disciplinary issue with a kid who was not from our church. And I went into this with a scowl. I had to talk to this kid about something he had done that was against the rules of camp. And he's a young uh, 16-year-old man. I sat down with him, and I was having a hard talk with him. And then immediately I could just see that this kid was a wounded kid. And my heart softened immediately for him. And we began to talk about life. And man, it was just devastating to talk to this kid about what he had been through in life. It's a miracle that he was at a Christian camp where he could hear about and pursue Jesus. Abandoned by his father, abandoned by his mother, his mother living in a home that he wasn't allowed to come. She wouldn't build a room for him, wouldn't create a place for him. Living with her, her, her female partner. He's living with a grandma who doesn't really want him, but it's just a place for him to stay. He's hated at his school. And I'm just listening to him tell his story. It's like, man, the, the, the least important thing in that conversation was me disciplining this kid. The most important thing was me just trying to encourage this young man. To, man, it's a miracle of God you're at this camp. And as we talked and as I prodded and poked and as he shared his life story with me, at the end I said, you know, brother, I'd really, I'd really love to pray with you. Can I pray for you? He's like, I, I, I suppose. I've never had anyone do that. And I asked him, I said, would it be okay if I put my hand on your shoulder? And he's like, oh, I get really, it's uncomfortable for me to be touched by men. I was like, where's that come from? And he just told me a horrific story of sexual abuse in his life. And uh, he let me touch his shoulder and I got to pray for him. You know, and I think, about, I think about the race, right? The race that we're supposed to run. I mean, there are some challenges that people face to running this race. This kid had been abandoned, forgotten, abused, bullied. And yet he was there. And for whatever place he was in life, he was trying to figure out this race that was set before him. I was trying to encourage him that God had not abandoned him, though those who were supposed to protect him had 
that God was with him in all of this and that there are faithful servants who have suffered many, many dark and evil things in this world that have finished the race in faithfulness. We're reminded that God helped them and God can help us too. As I looked at this kid, I thought you have the world against you. But if God helped them then, he helps us today and he will help you as well. I don't know about you. For me to look at those who have finished the race in faithfulness, it is hugely motivating for me. We do not do this race alone. My hope is that you benefit from this truth because there are real people who actually lived, flesh and blood people who drew breath, who lived on planet earth, who, who lived this life and succeeded for the glory of God. We can read about them in scripture, get to know them. There are faithful saints who have lived and died well throughout the history of the church through the last 2,000 years, many of whom have biographies written about them, many of whom are just the saints in your family. You have grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins who have gone before you, who have gone to be with the Lord. If they live faithfully for the Lord, learn their stories, tell their stories, draw strength from their faithful running of the race. And church, look around. There are men and women in this room right now who are running the race ahead of you. I was just talking to Jacob in the back. We're talking about, we are dreaming about being a church that facilitates an intentional and purposeful mentoring community. We're older, wiser people who are ahead of others on that, that race to the cross, that race to glory, that, that we are trying to facilitate in a very strategic way, true and authentic life-on-life mentorship happening within our church. We think that's so important that as the body is ministering to one another, look around. There are people who are ahead of you who are running that race faithfully. Learn from them. Acquaint yourself with them. Be humble enough to ask for guidance and wisdom and coffee and lunch. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Others have run faithfully and finished this race. Secondly, here's the second inspiration. Strengthen your weak knees. Here's the information. Jesus has gone before you to make a way. Jesus has gone before you to make a way. We touched on this last week. I'm going to touch briefly on this now. Verse 3 tells us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We talked last week about what it meant to consider him. What I didn't talk about last week, which I didn't on earth until this week was that this word, this word consider, it's the only time it's mentioned in the New Testament. It's a really long and complicated Greek word, but it's, in a, it's a term associated with accounting. It means to think over, to consider, to ponder. It's an accounting term. And so we are, yes, to look at those faithful saints who have finished the race before us and be encouraged by their faithful witness, but there is only one in whom we are to consider. We're only to consider Jesus. We're to study him very closely. We're to scrutinize his life. We're to ponder Christ. The wholeness of his life. We're, we're to ponder his eternal existence, his, his, his incarnation, his earthly life, his teachings. We're to ponder his crucifixion, his death and resurrection, his ascension. We're to ponder his present reign. We're to ponder his future return and the eternal state. We're to ponder all of these things, but we're especially to ponder his life and ministry here on earth because in so doing, we see that he has gone before us to make a way in the incarnation. Jesus is ultimately a trailblazer before us as we run the race of faith. He has run the race before us. We're to look to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so how do, we, how, do we, how do we look to him? Well, number one, we have to look to him as, as an example. Jesus is the example first. But not primarily, but firstly, he's the example. 
That's what verse 3 is saying. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Example his life so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus, in enduring the cross, as we know, he kept his eyes focused on the outcome, on the promise that was ahead, and as a result, he endured the cross. As I heard this week, Jesus looked through the cross to the coming joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's what enabled him to endure the suffering. Verse 36 of chapter 10, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Jesus ran that race for us. This is a vision of endurance that looks beyond the pain to the promise. We're to keep our eyes there as believers. As you and I run this race, as we confront weariness and faint-heartedness, as we deal with disappointment and difficulty, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. His example of perseverance His example of a persevering faith must be continually considered as we journey along this race that God has given us. He's our example. But primarily, secondly, he's our savior. Yes, he's our example, but ultimately he's our savior. I love how verse 2 of chapter 12 ends. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how the book of Hebrews begins, if you remember. Chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This is a picture of completedness. His work is done. Everything necessary for the salvation of man has been finished. And it necessarily, God's plan to redeem humankind necessarily included the cross. I heard one preacher talk about how uh, there were many who gathered around the cross that day at Golgotha when he was dying. And they mocked Jesus. They said, if you're truly the son of God, come down from there. Had Jesus come down, he would not have been the founder nor the perfecter of our faith. Because in dying and in journeying through agony to glory, he was a trailblazer for you and for me. He walked through agony to glory and he sat down at the right hand of God. He has completed his work. And you know why he did this? Do you remember why he did this? For the joy that was set before him. That's why he endured the cross. What are we to make of that phrase? What does that mean that for the joy set before him, he endured the agony of the cross? What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Well, it wasn't just his joy. Jesus, in enduring the torture of the cross, he was anticipating your joy. And my joy as well. That joy extends to all who faithfully finish the race. Think of the language of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Chapter 15, verse 12, or verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16, Jesus says, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. In the high priestly prayer, in the upper room, right before he is betrayed, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, they may, That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It is the prayer of Jesus Christ that his joy would be in his disciples so that his disciples would have a complete joy. He endured the torture of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Not just his joy, but our joy. The joy set before Christ was for all who follow him. And that joy motivated Jesus to endure the cross. For our joy, he endured the cross for us. So he's not just our example, but he's our very real Savior. And when we know that, when we know there are saints who have finished the race before us, and we know that Jesus has been a trailblazer for us, he's gone before us to make a way, that, that's hopeful. There's a way. 
And hope generates endurance. He ran through agony to glory for you. He is a trailblazer for you. So church, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Others have run faithfully and finished the race. Jesus has gone before you to make a way. Thirdly, the inspiration is strengthen your weak knees, but the instruction, thirdly, and this is very briefly, is it's not as bad as it might be. It's not as bad as it might be. Look at verse 4. The author to the Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The author says, You have not yet had to face the loss of life, at least not yet, to that first century church. Now, I, I was hesitant to even include this in the text, but it, it, in my teaching, but it's in the text, so I had to, because I know sometimes what we do to not deal with the things going on in our life as we play the compare game, and that can be unhealthy, we can say, I have it bad, but not as bad as that person, so I'm just going to shut up and be quiet and not even think about my pain because it's not as bad as this person over there. And I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. I think we need to address and deal with whatever's going on in our life. So I don't want to get us caught up in that sort of a comparison game where there's like a, like a one-upsmanship on suffering. But the author here, he says that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of death. And I was thinking about what's happening on the world today. I went on to the Voice of the Martyrs website and they have this world watch list that always every year they update what are the countries in the world where there's the most extreme persecution. And, and I read that there are 312 million Christians on planet Earth today who are, who are laboring under extreme or very high persecution. Not in America, but in other places around the world, across the Middle East and the continent of Africa, across Asia. One in seven Christians in the world today, right now, as we gather and worship freely in, at Heritage Christian Fellowship, one in seven of your brothers and sisters right now is under the back breaking uh, pressure and oppression of persecution across the world. One in five are, pro are persecuted in Africa. Two in five are persecuted in Asia right now to the point of shedding their own blood in prison, killed, persecuted. So as we gather here to worship, let's be mindful and let's let our hearts be moved with the, the real life experience of our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Somalia and Saudi Arabia, and Eritrea, and Libya, and Nigeria, and Pakistan, and Iran, and Afghanistan, and Sudan, and India. Those are the 11 countries in the world where persecution today, right now, is extreme to the point of death. And also, on top of that, my wife reminded me, we were sitting around talking about this text yesterday. We were talking about how it's not as bad as it could be, but she's like, well, well thanks to Jesus... Like, he, he, he sat under and endured the wrath our sin deserves... And so he is the ultimate sufferer. What a, what, a, what a remarkable thing to think about. When we were in Israel a couple of weeks ago, we went to this place called the Church of St. Peter at Galakantu. It's this cathedral outside of the walls of Jerusalem, the old walls of Jerusalem, and it's believed to be the place where Caiaphas had his office or had his palace or where Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, lived. And, and it's believed that that is where Jesus went and sat before Caiaphas before he was taken to Pontius Pilate. And underneath this church, there are these old uh, prison cells and jail cells that are carved out of the granite. And there's a giant pit there where Jesus was supposedly left alone for the night to sit by himself. And as we were sitting there, one of the guys on our, our trip said, 
as we were sitting in this pit and we were just kind of sitting in the gravity of that place of Jesus bearing the sins of the world, uh, forsaken by God, sitting in this dark pit, one of the guys on our team, and I might have shared this with you previously, but one of the guys on our team said, in a kind of a moment of contemplation, he said, you know, Jesus is the only one who's ever truly been alone. As he sat in the bottom of that pit on that night of his betrayal, forsaken by God and everyone else, he's the only man who's ever lived who is truly alone. That really hit me. He read through Psalm 88 in the bottom of that pit. Listen to what the psalmist writes and think about Jesus utterly forgotten and alone in that pit as he bore the sins of humankind. The psalmist writes, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So ultimately, it's not as bad as it might be because Christ bore the sins and the wrath and the punishment our sin deserves. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And so church, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your your weak knees. Others have run and have faithfully finished this race. It's doable. Jesus has gone before you and he's made a way. Things are not as bad as they might be. And finally, the bit of inspiration is strengthen your weak knees. Here's the the last bit of information, the last bit of truth, the last bit of instruction I want you to hold on to this morning. God is lovingly with you in every moment. God is lovingly with you in every moment. God is actively present in every challenge you face in this race. And he is always acting for your good. And that might be really hard to believe in the midst of struggle and in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of abandonment and challenge and pain and suffering, but it's true. I have a friend from Wisconsin who just this morning posted on social media, and I happened to see it. He just posted, he said, "Uh, for many years I have been struggling with something I couldn't figure it out. Last night God revealed to me what it is, a fear of abandonment. This guy's like 60. And he finally, after, you know, 45, 50 years of following Jesus, he finally figured out what this, the, the, this ache in the, in the background, this, this drone in the backdrop of his life that was always there, this constant ache, it was a fear of abandonment. And I was just studying our text this morning, and I was thinking about the Father heart of God to draw near the ones he loves, and I just commented, praise God for this revelation, brother. And praise God for his Father heart in which he declares, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6. I'm so glad to know that's true. If you read through the text, you're going to notice that nine times there is a word that appears in verses 5 through 11. It shows up nine times. It's the Greek word, paideia. It's the word that's translated discipline or disciplines. It shows up nine times in our text. This, This... Depending on what your experience is with the word discipline is going to depend on how you interpret that word. For some of you, you, you were abused under the guise of discipline. And so when I use the word discipline, you're like, ooh, yeah, my dad disciplined me with a rod until I couldn't walk. Or my parents disciplined me in such a way that they destroyed my childhood. But the word discipline as it appears in our text, here's what the word means in context. 
It means the whole training and education of a child. It's to cultivate the mind and the morals of a child. It's instruction that aims to, to, to increase the virtue of a child. And so when I, I'm going to read through these verses again, verse 5 through 11. Make note of all the times you hear the word discipline. Have you forgotten, beginning in verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here he quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and you respect them. Shall we not much more subject, be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Nine times. And then notice, if you will, in verses 10 and 11, what four motivations lead God to discipline us. The four motivations of God's discipline are, look at verse 10, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the discipline of God, there's a reason and a purpose for God's discipline action in our life. It's for our good. It's for our holiness. It's for our peace. It's for our righteousness. This is God's goal for you and for me. The, the sanctifying chisel, the molding, shaping chisel of God in our life is his discipline. And we often endure painful seasons, but the pain is producing godliness in us. As the, as, the, as the potter smashes and molds and pounds the clay on the wheel, it's a violent thing to be shaped and formed as a violent thing. But at the end, it's creating a beautiful masterpiece. The, 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 the one who sculpts granite, she takes a chisel to the granite. It's a violent action, knocking off blocks that don't need to be there. It's, it's not pleasant, but in the end, is there's this masterpiece that reflects the image of God. It is for our good, this discipline that God allows into our life. It is for our holiness. It is ultimately for our peace and our righteousness. So big church, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Please. Listen to these instructions this morning. Let them be an encouragement to your soul. Others have run this race, and they have faithfully finished the race to the glory of God. Jesus has gone before you. He has made a way. He is a trailblazer from agony to glory. Things are not as bad as they might be, and we can know God in his Father heart toward us. He is lovingly with you and me in every moment. So in light of all of that, look with me one last time at verses 12 and 13. This is God's goal for you today. As a loving father, God is at work in your life. And the author, speaking on behalf of God, wants to encourage you and for me. Therefore, church, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The pain in your life 
is not for nothing, to use a double negative. It's designed by God for your good. It's not trivial meaninglessness. It is God's hand at work. Whatever you're enduring today has passed through Jesus if you are in Christ. What a helpful and encouraging truth this is. What great reminders for you and me as we seek to run the race of faith. It helps us press on. The aim of all of this teaching, the aim of all of this is so that you and me will not give up, that we will have a persevering faith, that we will endure to the very end. Strengthen your weak knees. Others have finished. Know what Jesus has done for you. Look at his example and look at him as Savior. It's not as bad as it could be because Christ took the punishment for sins upon himself. God is present with you. The fatherhood of God is present with you right now. And he's working in your life no matter how dark and painful it may be or how beautiful and bright it may be. He is working in your life for your good, for your holiness, for your peace, and for your righteousness. Do not take these things lightly, church. For those of you that are in the midst of struggle, this is life to you right now. Do not let these sift through your fingers. Hold to this truth. And for those of you that are fortunate enough today, today to be in a season of plenty or joy or ease or comfort, don't let these slip away. Grasp them, hold them, put them in the pocket of your heart, staple them to the wall of your mind. God has given you these instructions. He's given you this information. He's given you these truths so that you will run the race with faithfulness that he has set before you. Amen? Because when we know these things, when we know that we can be in We can be encouraged and motivated and inspired to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We also can then look to our left and look to our right and we can strengthen the knees of others so that together we can press on and not give up, so that we can help each other not grow weary or faint-hearted. We can press on until together we are done as the body of Christ until we enter the joy, until we enter his joy. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for this text this morning and God, for the encouragement that it is to each one of us, Lord, that we are not running this race in a vacuum. We're not in isolation. We can lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees because we know that there are others who have gone before us and who have faithfully finished this race. May that be an encouraging truth to our hearts this morning. And we know as we look to you, Jesus, that you are a great forerunner. You have gone before us. You have made a way. You are a trailblazer from agony to glory, God. May we, may we find great encouragement at that truth as we journey through this life and run this race. God, help us to recognize that things are not as bad as they might be, very practically, but also because of what, Jesus, you have done by taking our sin and the punishment of our sin upon yourself, we know for sure that things are not as bad as they might be. And God, how awesome to be reminded this morning that you are presently with each one of us. In your Father heart towards us, you journey with us and you've, you've allowed everything into our life, even the painful things for our good. You will use what the enemy means for evil for our good and your glory. That is amazing to know that truth, God. So by your spirit, in light of these true things this morning, God, would you lift our drooping hands and would you strengthen our weak knees for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.